Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. Welcome back to the Tech Ed Podcast. I am your host, Matt Kirkner. What a crazy ride we are on with the U.S. economy. Last year, we saw the highest inflation that we've seen in 40 years, almost in my lifetime, not quite, but 40 years ago was the last time we saw this kind of inflation. We've got states that are now flush with COVID cash. We have unemployment at historical lows, but yet so many people sitting out of the workforce. It is going to be a crazy time for the economy for technical education. And the guest that we have with us today to talk all about this is somebody that I've known, I think, for about 20 years. This is a big deal. We're really proud to have this guest on with us. He is a very, very highly regarded economist and expert, not just on the U.S. economy, but the global economy. And this is going to be a phenomenal conversation and a fascinating conversation with Brian Bolio. Brian is the CEO of ITR Economics. Brian, thank you so much for being on the Tech Ed Podcast. Matt, it is my great pleasure. Good to see you. It's great to see you. And like I said in our intro, we're going to have a really fascinating conversation. Every time I've spent time with you, I've come away smarter. I've come away more invigorated. I've come away with a number of nuggets that I wasn't necessarily expecting, but always helped me in my business. So I'm sure that our educators and our employers that are listening today are going to feel exactly the same way. I want to dive right in because I know we've got a short time together today. One of the things that's really, really interested me over the course of the last, let's say, five or 10 years is we kept expecting this huge inflation. You know, I had all this, all the stimulus, we had, you know, record low interest rates for so very long. And you kept every time there was another, another spending bill, every time the Fed kind of stayed still on interest rates, you were like, when is the inflation going to catch up with us? I think a lot of folks almost realized or, or maybe thought that it wasn't going to. And then here a year and a half ago, a half ago or so, it's 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 all over us. One of the reasons that I've heard why we were able to keep it in check for so long was things like you know historically low energy prices, all the automation that we've been using in manufacturing that have driven costs down at a time when monetary policy wasn't necessarily keeping inflation in check. Do you see it the same way? And 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 how do you feel about inflation going forward? Two very different questions. First, Enough. if you go back to that five ten years. Um, which you mentioned are certainly are factors, but uh, don't forget that there was global competition very much in the rigor of the economy. Uh, you go back 10 years, even five years, uh, much more global oriented competition. Globalization wasn't quite what it was 15 years ago, 20 years ago, but it was still very much a force. Part of the answer to the second part, though, is we're leaving globalization behind and turning more and more toward nationalism. And that ties in with bringing the supply chains into the United States, shortening things up, all the foreign direct investment being made in the United States. But when you do that, understand that you're, you're, you're saying, all right, we're not interested in globally sourcing to the low cost provider. We're not interested in honing a very competitive edge because we know we have some protection because people want it here in the United States. And over the long run, that can get you into higher inflation scenarios. And the other reason I wasn't surprised over the last five years we weren't at ITR is because 
when we follow the, the money supply, and that's one of those leading indicators to inflation, it's a two-year leading indicator. And the Fed never went hog wild with the money supply. It may have kept interest rates low for too long this cycle, but generally, and until we got to COVID, we hadn't seen anything like what the government has spent and what the Federal Reserve has accommodated in the way of quantitative easing, free money, all the rest of it. And it was almost two years to the month that the recent break in inflation, where the fever has broken, the rate of inflation is coming down, followed after the money supply and government spending. Almost two years to the month. It was absolutely incredible, Matt. So we expect that inflation is going to be easing its way downward, back down toward normal levels for now. There are longer-term issues at play, but if you want to look at just a cycle going out, say, three years, the inflation rate is going to be coming down. Well, that's that's good news, I think, for all of us. But to your point, also a lot of things going on relative to reshoring of manufacturing. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about it the way that you presented it in as much as nobody likes inflation. And we've also dealt with these literally unprecedented challenges in the in the supply chain, at least in my lifetime over the course of the last two years. We like to say on the Tech Ed podcast, if there's a silver lining to all those supply chain challenges, it's that the rest of the world now knows what those of us in manufacturing knew all along, which is just a vital importance that U.S. manufacturing plays to our very way of life here in the United States. So so that is getting a fair amount of, of attention. But what I'm hearing from you is that now our reshoring that's taking place as companies are probably becoming a little bit more protective themselves, maybe federal and governmental policy is, is promoting this whole idea of reshoring, that that's going to drive inflation as well. And so that may not uh, bring inflation down to the degree that it otherwise would have been had we continued in a global economy. Am I understanding that right? Yes, you are. And there's a nuance, by the way, to uh, uh, because we, you mentioned bringing jobs back, where we're going to find the people to work those jobs, but companies coming back in and reshoring in the United States. And most people picture China when you say that. But over the course of 2022, something very interesting happened, and it's been evolving. Europe is now a, a bigger trading partner for the United States than is China. I read I mean, that. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Go ahead. I think that's great in, in that they're a more stable ally than China could be, particularly given the strife about Taiwan that's not going to easily go away. Um, our economy has much sure supply partners in Europe than we will have out of uh, China in particular. Out of Yeah, without question. And so at, at a minimum, that is going to kind of cement that supply chain going forward, it sounds like, and that we'll have more dependable partners, even as we reshore here to the United States and to other parts of the West, including Europe. It's going to be a fascinating ride that we're on in manufacturing. Any other implications that you can think of? You talked about inflation, Brian, but other implications of this whole push toward reshoring in the West that we should be thinking about from an economic standpoint? And I alluded to part of that and where we're going to find the people to work these jobs. I mean, this is going to be a strong impetus for automation, uh, improving our systems, our processes. And I don't just mean on the manufacturing floor. I mean, our information processes and understanding that uh, just-in-time inventory is not going to be, uh, you know, the dream come true when you have these supply chain issues. Uh, So many factors are changing at the same time that to be a manufacturer or a distributor today is probably more exciting than it's been for the last 25 years. This is um, going to be quite a ride. It is going to be a great ride. And that's great news for anybody that's doing business in the manufacturing sector, especially all the suppliers that we think about who are supplying the education world 
And so that that part of it is going to be fascinating for them as well as they see this tremendous growth. You mentioned the workforce challenges, Brian. And one of the things that I've just been absolutely fascinated with these this last several years uh, and really into 2022 especially is this huge number of working age individuals between the ages of, let's say, 25 and, and the mid-50s, and especially working age males that are sitting out the workforce. There was an article, and I don't know if it's moderated at all, but an article in the Wall Street Journal last spring, uh, it talked about one in eight working age males sitting out the workforce now. Uh, is is that issue still an issue that you see affecting the economy? What's causing that, and what do we do about it? I, I don't know what we do about it. Um, all I can do is look at the, the data, and at a micro level, we develop strategies at, at the business level. But as a, if I were emperor of the economy, what would I do about it? I have no idea. In terms of them sitting out, it's funny. We look at uh, labor participation rates, and while the Federal Reserve and others likes to say it's us baby boomers, I'm pointing at myself, not you, Matt, since you're barely 40 years old. You said. Uh, I'm close enough. I'm right on the fence somewhere in the middle. <laughs> we dropped out following the Great Recession, and the rate that us baby boomers have dropped out of the labor force is no different than it was following the Great Recession. The big differences that I noticed were these. College-educated people in from in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, they're a large swath of who's opted out of the workforce. And that's a COVID echo because they, they had to stay home with the children. And they said, huh, look at all the money we're saving on this child care. Hmm. Interesting. If we, if we modify our living standards a little bit, we both don't have to go back to work. So that's a big swath of people right there. And, and what's cool is those kids are going to grow up and those people are going to come back. Okay. Then we follow the federal EIN uh, applications. And there's a tremendous surge of people who are starting their own businesses because they don't want to go back into the office or they want a better work-life balance and maybe was being offered to them. Uh, and obviously, that's not a boots on the ground manufacturing job. It's a professional services job more than anything. Uh, so they're starting their own businesses, right? But three to five years out, 80% of those businesses are gone because they're going to fail. And those people are going to be coming back looking for a job. And my advice to anybody who comes knocking on your door that has already quit you once, don't hire them back. Don't hire the quitters. Hire somebody else's quitters, but not your own quitters. Because how many times does the second marriage work out with this first spouse? You know, it, I mean, it does happen, but it's kind of a fluke thing more than anything you can count on. Then there's a lot of males, and I think these may be more males and females that have dropped out of the workforce and are working in the underground economy. They're, they're just off the grid. They're getting paid in Bitcoin. They're getting paid in cash. They're not reporting anything. And they have they just seem to have disappeared. Uh, so as far as we can tell, none of this has a short-term solution. The best thing that we could do to solve our labor woes in this country, in our opinion, is come up with a cogent, long-term, documented labor program for people who want to come into the United States and have the thing run by businesses, not government. Because every two to four years, that's the pendulum that swings back the other way, and it just becomes a horrible mess. Um, we need business people running our immigration program, or we need to figure out, you know, the Canadians got this down a little while ago. Why don't we just act a little bit more like the Canadians, eh? 
Hey, I love it. And we're, you know, as, as we're we're talking about this and as we're recording this episode that'll air in early 23, we see this pendulum actually swinging this week, right? As the Supreme Court and the executive branch go back and forth over over what's going on at the border. So you're exactly right. If we can pull that out of the political uh, realm, it doesn't really matter who you talk to. Everybody recognizes it's a challenge. And I think especially people in manufacturing are like, we need the workers, people in hospitality, people in retail, like we need the workers. Let's figure out a logical way to address this immigration issue so that we can have the workforce that we need for the future. You've already buried a whole bunch of really interesting tidbits in the the last couple of answers that you've given, Brian. One about, you know, when we think about automation, oftentimes we think about robots doing manufacturing work. But to your point, we can automate all kinds of processes in offices. We can automate the processing of paperwork, of invoices, of purchasers, all of these things that in so many ways are being done manually. Huge opportunities for automation there. And as we look to the future um, of, of processes, not just on the manufacturing floor, but really across the economy, finding ways to automate in ways that make workers more productive and make their jobs more interesting. And in the case of manufacturing, uh, make them safer as well. You also talk a little bit about hire somebody else's dropouts or somebody else's former workers, not your own. And I can tell you from experience, um, I've only had one person that came back that ever worked out and the rest of them, um, you know, they come back in and whatever issue there was, whatever they didn't like about the job, whatever the company didn't like about them, that didn't go away just because they spent a year from the organization. In fact, sometimes it got a little bit worse. So I think that's that's really, really good advice as well. One of the one of the things I always loved, Brian, about hearing you speak was the way that you had your hands into so many different trends demographically, so many different shifts. We've talked about a couple already. Any other ones that our educators and our employers should have on their radar as they look to the future? Uh, it's, it's, I'm hesitating only, Matt, because I'm not sure where their heads are at, and I don't want to uh, tell people things that they already know. So I'm going to step back, and then you can hone it in a little bit more. If you Please want. do. Sure. Um, I find too many baby boomers still don't understand that the millennials, um, whether the older half or the younger half or the Gen Z, their work ethic is as strong as anybody else's. They just work differently. Amen. That's all. Thank it, you. It's your inability to comprehend how they work differently that gives you that opinion that they don't work hard or they don't want success. Yes, they want more of a work-life balance, but that doesn't mean they're not working at eight o'clock at night to make up for going to see little Melissa's soccer game or something. <laughs> right. you know? I mean, it's at least that's been my experience yep. and as i talk to other people and and i don't this is probably more prevalent in the midwest so you might be more uh, tuned in on it but i find through the midwest is a much more vigorous push toward getting people back into the office place and denying the distributed workforce environment that is really pervasive right now and the millennials they're not keen on being in the office place. So why are we going to try and force them in there when we have a labor shortage rather than trying to find a way to accommodate their needs for the sake of our corporate culture? Well, I got to tell you, there's ways to get around that. You just have to think a little bit differently. At our little company, I mean, we're only 80 people, right? But most of them are spread around the country, and we still come in as one of the 10 best places to work for. Right. Uh, in, in At least in New Hampshire, which is where we are domiciled. You can, Find ways to make the culture, the communication work. But I tell you, brother, it's it's a lot different than it was pre-COVID. I, For sure. Not how we ran a business before uh, COVID, but change or die sometimes, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's been absolutely fascinating. And we had, you know, in, in our businesses separate from the Tech Ed podcast, our culture has been for a long time 
work from wherever you're most productive. And you're right, whether it's the millennial generation, the Gen Zs, they'll work like crazy, but they won't work just because they need to be at a at a desk from eight to five or whatever it is. That's the wrong reason. You know, if you give them a big enough mission, if you give them a big enough reason, if you give them resources, um, and if you let them work independently and have the flexibility to figure out how to get to the end game their way, the way they like to work, they can be incredibly productive. And I can tell you, you know, in that business, and it sounds like yours is the same way, really, really young group of people that do amazing things, but not because anybody forces them to or because anybody you know chases them around with a time clock and says, what were you doing during this hour of the day? If you want to go running at one o'clock in the afternoon, go running at one o'clock in the afternoon. You want to work at 10 o'clock at night? That's fine. And I think I think you're exactly right. Certainly here in the Midwest, we are seeing some draconian, you know, we all, we always worked as a team. You have to be in the office. And, and those organizations, I think, are, are cheating themselves out of access to just a phenomenal workforce. So I think you make a perfect point there. Let me layer on a nuance. You touched upon it. Millennials, Gen Zs, they don't want to work just for the money, right? They want to know that they're working for a cause, right? Okay, I'm going to help you make money, man. I'm going to help you make this business a success. But I also know by doing that, we're going to change our world a little bit, either a local community because we're we're philanthropic or some large global measure. But there's some higher calling to what they're doing than just punching the time clock and bringing home a paycheck. Exactly. And if you can pick up that and you appeal to their better natures that way, uh, you get a lot of stickiness out of these uh, young people. Absolutely. If if you can, if the mission is big enough, they will work like crazy. Of course, our mission here at the Tech Ed Podcast, we say, is to secure the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. That's a pretty big mission, but it's a really, really important reason to come into work. And it's a it's a big reason that our technical educators come into work as well, Brian. You know, you touched on some of the uh, you know some of the money supply policies from two years ago as we got into COVID, and, and I'm I'm referring specifically in our case to to the CARES Act, to the ARPA money that is absolutely flooded into education. Technical educators will tell you they have access to funding through a whole number of sources that they haven't seen in 40 or 50 years. Uh, and it's so in, in a lot of ways, it's kind of the halcyon days for the world of technical education. For those that are thinking about it right and investing those resources in the right places, if I'm on the education side and I'm used to, at least for now, uh, this incredible amount of funding, what are your thoughts on what the next several years look like on, on that side of the coin? Several being three years, I think the uh, you know the funding levels aren't going to be so generous. But there's been a uh, that's part of the COVID echo, I think. Uh, and government has an emphasis on trying to bring all these businesses back into the United States or starting new ones up. And they're not dumb; they know there's a lack of people, and we all are acutely aware that is in the uh, the technical side of things or or the trades also where. We just have a dearth of people. We have so many people dying or retiring and not nearly enough filling them up. Something's got to give. It's not like we can't afford to go without. We, we Something is going to have to change. And I think it's the pay scales, uh, both of the educators and of the providers of those uh, services, whether that service is standing by a CNC machine inside a manufacturing center or somebody working uh, in a warehouse or Somebody um, mowing the lawn because they work for a lawn lawn care business. I mean, uh, uh, this isn't going to win me any friends. But you know you're in trouble when you pay athletes stupid amounts of money to entertain us. And we don't pay people who provide real services enough money to have the standard of living that they really should have. And don't send me ugly cards and letters. I'm 
I'm a capitalist I, through and through. I just recognize as an economist where there are imbalances that inhibit our ability to achieve everything that we can achieve as an economist. Certainly. As I think back on my, I think it was 12 credits of economics back at Marquette University years ago, certainly not the kind of training that you've had, but that whole law of supply and demand and the idea that we've got tremendous demand for folks in these types of positions, whether it's the skilled trades, whether it's automation technicians, electromechanical technicians, welders, CNC machinists, you name it, there's huge demand. And the way, one of the ways that we fix that supply and demand imbalance is to find a way to pay people what we need to pay them in order to attract them to those kind of jobs. And I think you're exactly right. You know, the other thing that I heard from you that I think is going to be great news to our technical educators is this idea that, you know, public policy makers are not immune to understanding that we have this issue and that part of the solution is going to be to educate that next generation of the workforce. That's going to be really, really good news. Uh, for them, at least for the next several years. So so if Brian Bolio is correct, at least funding, maybe not what it was to her the last two years, but but certainly uh, strong enough to be able to continue to grow our programs, which is important. One of the other things that we see growing, Brian, is this whole interest in big data and artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, you know, you've got 80 people and you're you're out working with clients and you're you're out gathering information and you're crunching data and you're drawing conclusions. And I and I know that you're incredibly adept at that. I would be curious as to whether or not and to what degree the whole idea of big data and how we analyze it using artificial intelligence and machine learning is changing the way that you look at your business at ITR. It's changed already a portion of our business in that uh, we developed uh, an investment process called the Optimizer, and that uses ETFs at its base. Okay, and, and I'm not trying to bore anybody, but we do that based on our traditional way of analyzing the economy, what's going to be doing well, what isn't. Our financial partner, Bellwether Wealth, took that and said, okay, there's this whole universe of stocks sort of surround that ETF and they built the machine learning and the AI to tell us which individual stocks are likely to do best in the coming month in the next two months after that um, based on what ITR says is going to be going on within the economy and the returns have been phenomenal so they are literally analyzing millions of bits of information every month something no human could possibly do but this sort of Data is now available when you have that technology, and it is it blows my mind that uh, I mean I end up owning stocks that I never even knew existed. But uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, if it works, it works, yeah. right? Yeah, it works. that's fantastic. Yeah, and I think more, you know one of the things that that is a message maybe hidden in that in that answer for for anybody considering AI and, and machine learning. I get a lot of questions from folks that say, well, you know, where do I even start? And and what you have said is, look. You know, you don't necessarily have to develop that algorithm or that AI platform on your own. You can leverage somebody else's with your own data and collaborate in a way that then enables you you both to benefit from it. And and that's a great example of what Bellwether Wealth was that the organization you suggested? Yeah, just a just a perfect example. I know we only have a few minutes left with you, Brian, and you're a very busy gentleman. I want to squeeze two more questions in. We have a lot of manufacturers that that tune into the Tech Ed podcast to think about the futures of their organizations. And I know you do tremendous consulting with manufacturers all over the globe and certainly here in the United States. So you know, where is your manufacturers consider investing in their businesses the next several years? Where are you advising them to look? Oh, to solve the people problem. I mean, anything you that's the that's your goal. That's your true north when it comes to how am I investing? 
And maybe that means um, buying a competitor um, because there are some real synergies or they have the talents that I need to really drive my bus. Um, or maybe it's just some of this automation or delving into machine learning. You know, you mentioned big data before, uh, and this ties into education. I think data scientists are going to play more and more of a role in managing our world, our business world going forward. It's becoming much more complex than you and I ever grew up with, Matt. For sure. Yeah, I've been telling people now, honestly, for about seven years, our producer, Melissa, will attest to this, that if you know somebody who is smart and analytical and career undecided, an an opportunity, a career in data science, in in business analytics, I mean, that is where the future is. And, And I would encourage any of our young listeners who are considering what their future looks like to add data as a component or even a mainstay in terms of their educational pathway and what they see into the future. Just a couple minutes left with you, Brian. I want to squeeze this last question in here. And that is similar thoughts for our technical educators and educators in general, what are some economic trends that are going to affect education in the next five years, and how should they be thinking about them? Inflation is going to be down for like three years, but you said for the next five years, and beyond that, there's going to be some more resurgent inflation, um, and that's going to cause government to have to spend more on interest expense, and then that means they're going to be looking for ways to cut spending. So while I'm pretty confident about this space for the next three years. Those outward two years, um, I don't know that I trust the government to maintain their current priorities more than three years out from now. Yeah, I don't know that we ever can, given our system of government, which has its blessings and sometimes its curses, but but absolutely. So it sounds like uh, a good solid three years for funding in the world of education here. So 36 months of feast, and then maybe start to think now about what the famine looks like thereafter is as the government starts to squeeze its funding of education and we have to continue to educate the next generation of young people with maybe fewer resources. Brian, you've given us a tremendous number of resources today to think about lots of really, really good ideas. It's always fun to spend time with you and I really appreciate you joining us on the Tech Ed Podcast. Well, thank you, Matt. And it's just great to work with you and see you again. So um, glad to be here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.